The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside DJ. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out daily space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or an email to spexcast at gmail.com. This week on SpexCast, we dive into the scientific instruments that drive new discoveries. NASA's Development and Advancement of Lunar Instrumentation, or DALI Award, selected five finalist projects for continued development, from neutron generators that can determine the composition of planets to lasers that can determine how old our solar system is. These new instruments promise exciting scientific potential, if and when they fly on spacecraft in the future. NASA also selected the Atmospheric Waves Experiment as part of NASA's Heliophysics Explorers Program, which will go to the ISS to expand our understanding of Earth's upper atmosphere. So most people think of the moon as a dry, airless place, but that's not entirely true. A faint atmosphere surrounds the moon and water exists in many forms inside craters and minerals across the moon. The Submillimeter Solar Observation Lunar Volatiles Experiment, or SOLVE, instrument is designed to measure how that water moves from the surface of the moon into its thin atmosphere over the course of a lunar day, in effect measuring the water cycle on the moon. So this instrument's really interesting because it monitors something that we really haven't had a good idea about even when we sent people to the surface of the moon. So when the Apollo astronauts landed, they didn't detect any noticeable atmosphere. It wasn't until 2008 when other orbiting lunar probes detected a faint uh, atmosphere around the moon. And so how this works is basically a combination of a heliostat, which is a relatively simple mirror that tracks the sun, and a spectrometer that takes that light and basically using the sun as a uh, backlight can measure water, hydrogen oxide, and an interesting element, uh, heavy water, which is water made up of deuterium atoms instead of standard hydrogen. And so when I'm, I was reading about this instrument, the f- thing that jumped out at me the most was this lunar water cycle. On Earth, we have a robust water cycle that we see with condensation, precipitation, and collection. So rivers and uh, streams and rain and snow all working together to move water across the Earth's surface and that is a huge part of our ecosystem. But the moon actually has moving water as well, it's just really hard to measure. Uh, So in the white paper for SOLVE, they talk about three sources of lunar water. There's micrometeoroids, which are water-based asteroids that have impacted the moon that have brought water to the surface. Uh, There's solar wind that is bringing water molecules that impact the the lunar surface. And then there's uh, hydrated minerals, which is water locked into uh, compounds in the rocks. And uh, through lunar sampling and various probes, we've known that there is water on the moon in limited quantities. What this experiment is trying to do is show how that water moves uh, when the sun heats up the lunar surface. And then using that, try to figure out what percentage of each of these sources actually makes the biggest 
uh, impact. So the basic concept is that during the lunar day, which is two weeks, uh, roughly Earth time, uh, the sun heats up the lunar surface. So if there was any frost or like actual ice on the surface, it would uh, evaporate and enter the really thin lunar atmosphere. Um, and the hypothesis is that once uh, this water is in the atmosphere, it will uh, basically convect and move across the surface. And if it enters the uh, shadowed parts of the moon or the dusk side of the moon, it will deposit. And so the idea is to, using this uh, spectrometer, measure the different percentages of these materials to see uh, what that cycle actually looks like. So is this experiment uh, a lander or um, an instrument that would be on a lander? So all the ex uh, experiments we're talking about today are individual instruments. And what was actually interesting is that in the white paper, they talked about the uh, mission timeline. So they said that uh, for a mission that lasts 14 days, so one lunar day, and only 12 days of useful sunlight to power the instrument, a solar-powered lander could uh, power the electronics and the heliostat, and that's all they would need. And so I think it's actually interesting to see how, from a scientist's perspective, tailoring the proposal to be the most likely to be accepted. So what you mean is like the instrument itself, um, the mission life is only one uh, lunar day, or it's 14 Earth days long, uh, which means the instrument, if it were to be a standalone thing powered by the sun with batteries, it wouldn't be able to survive the night with heaters on and have enough batteries um, to make it through the whole lunar night because that would basically require a spacecraft, right? It would require more batteries, bigger solar panels, and all this infrastructure and heaters and, and everything. And what you're saying is that instead of letting the scope and magnitude of this mission creep up like that, the scientists broke it down into just one 14-day mission life, so they didn't need all that extra infrastructure to make it through the night? Exactly, Phil. Okay, so another question I have is... Is this something that needs to be on the surface to detect it? Why can't we see this with like telescopes? So the key working principle of this instrument is that it uses the sun as a backlight. And so the heliostat will basically keep tracking the sun and they, the spectrometer is measuring the entire column of the atmosphere. So the atmosphere is extremely thin. And so by measuring the entire uh, height of the atmosphere, they can get a more complete picture of what uh, kinds of water and water-based compounds are actually in the, the atmosphere. Understanding the water content of the lunar atmosphere, what's the driving force between learning this information? So the official stated goal is that it answers questions about the presence of water in the atmosphere and at the poles, because we've known for some time that there's frozen water in craters at the poles, uh, because they get less light. Right. And a key element is what ratio of water comes from which source. Uh, so okay. did the water on the moon come mainly from other asteroids? Or was it actually made up of the material that the moon was formed? So is that water locked in hydrates in the rocks? Cool. Yeah, so the next instrument's called Crater. And it kind of answers a really interesting question, which is, are there places in the solar system where conditions are right for life. 
So Crater stands for the Characterization of Regolith and Trace Economic Resources, which provides extremely accurate measurements of organic compounds and other materials in situ. So instead of having to do a sample return mission, we can do that analysis right where the samples are. Uh, now, the benefit to this is that sample return missions are more expensive, more complicated, and take much longer. So we've seen recently a uh, few missions trying to get sample returns from asteroids and comets, uh, but after uh, multiple years of getting to the location, it then takes years to get back to Earth. And due to the rocket equation, the size of the samples has to be very, very small. So if you had an instrument like Crater, you could actually analyze dozens or hundreds of samples, say on the surface of the moon or Mars, without having to send lots of material back to Earth. So why are these organic mo molecules important when looking at the regolith? Organic molecules, or the precursors for life, are important because NASA scientists and many space scientists are always looking to see what those conditions are like. So on Earth, uh, those necessary compounds and kind of the uh, environmental conditions that allows those compounds to come together and form RNA and DNA and the, the origins of life. And also the results would help with the theories for how the moon formed. So if the moon had some of these compounds in the regolith, that would imply that the Earth had them way back when, when the moon formed, if the moon came from the Earth. And, and it could feed into those theories too, I guess, right? Exactly. Uh, the other side of things is the trace economic resources part of Crater. Uh, by having a mass spectrometer, uh, that allows you to measure what kind of elements are in the sample means that without having a sample return mission, we can make uh, better determinations of what valuable materials are there. So for example, uh, asteroid mining is a huge open question of whether this is going to be a, a big industry. Instead of having to send a probe to a potential target asteroid, take a sample, come back to Earth, which would take years, being able to determine what that asteroid's made out of uh, once you've arrived to that also opens up opportunities where a satellite that, say, went to the asteroid belt could visit multiple asteroids in a row and kind of build up that initial catalog of what materials it's made out of, would those be valuable enough to send a kind of mining expedition or mining spacecraft out there. And so by cutting out that last step, it can reduce the cost of this significantly. How big is Crater and, and like how does it work? Is this something that you could see extending to those type of um, asteroid belt spacecraft or is this really tailored for a lunar mission or a particular vehicle in, in its design? Yeah, so the key uh, component of Crater is a high power solid state ultraviolet laser. And so that is shot at a sample, which turns it into ions, and then that gets sent into a mass analyzer, uh, which uh, the team actually calls the Cosma Orbit Trap. The Cosma Orbit Trap. And yes, that is also a trademark name. And so um, once that sample's been collected, it can produce high-resolution uh, spectrograms, which show the components that make up that sample. So part of it is the ability to get this information on location and that the technology is high enough resolution to make very accurate determinations of what percentages of these uh, materials are actually in the sample. 
So is this instrument like what what's the scale you know can we imagine this on a small like lunar x prize type lander or will we expect it on something bigger like uh, mars 2020 sized crater is a relatively compact instrument it's about 7.9 kilograms and about 16 centimeters tall uh, so you can imagine this could be something that a astronaut might carry on an eva or something that goes on an autonomous lander very cool okay so, what's the next instrument? The next instrument is uh, called BECA. Sometimes targeted sampling and analysis of rocks on a planetary body just isn't enough. The Bulk Elemental Composition Analyzer, or BECA, is designed to measure the overall composition of a planetary body, including the surface and the subsurface, and it does that by using fast neutrons and gamma rays. So, this is one of the most interesting instruments because it is using not only uh, nuclear physics to do remote sensing, it's actually a uh, technology transfer from the Earth-based oil drilling industry. Really? So the neutron generator on Becca produces very high energy neutrons. And what's good about that is that when these neutrons leave the neutron generator and hit the surface of the planet, they start interacting with the material. And so Becca is designed to excite the top 10 centimeters or so of the soil of a planet or the moon. And then the atoms in that material will become excited and actually produce gamma rays. So that's where the second part of Becca comes in. So by scanning the gamma rays that come off of the material, they can actually uh, determine what kind of materials those are by measuring the intensity of the ray. And there's four different ways uh, these gamma rays are generated. There's radioactive decay, so that's when a neutron uh, impacts an atom and puts it into an unstable isotope. The neutron capture, uh, where the energy is just given off and the neutron joins the atom. There's inelastic scattering, when that neutron gets hits and bounces off the, the atom. And there's also delayed neutron activation. So there's a whole bunch of really interesting nuclear physics that's happening in the uh, the target body when the sensor is operating. And the gamma ray spectrometer is reading in all of those signals. And uh, basically with what amounts to like a lookup table that's been calibrated to the known gamma ray emissions of minerals on Earth, it can determine what the composition of that planet is. So I guess the difference uh, between using these nuclear physics and using something like a mass spectrometer is that the mass spectrometer has to like, it's like destructive and it ionizes the surface particles, right? And like looks at that and looks at the spectrum of those. But this is going not only on the surface, but also beneath the surface. Exactly. Also, when you're taking a very small targeted sample, there's a chance that that specific rock is not indicative of the entire area that you're in. By taking a large uh, area sample and then producing but basically an average of the mineral content of the surface, you can get a much better idea of what the overall picture is instead of what that specific rock or that specific sample was. So it's while it's not as accurate as a direct mass spectrometer reading, it gives you a better idea of the overall composition and it's less sensitive to uh, that kind of misidentification. Uh, do you know any more about how this is used on Earth? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, 
Becca is uh, a technology transfer from the oil drilling uh, industry. And so uh, when a company is drilling a new well, they need to understand what the rock they're drilling through is composed of. And so uh, they have an instrument that has this neutron generator and this spectrometer, and it is lowered into the uh, well hole. And at the bottom, it will emit the neutrons and get a reading. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting. The main risk factors that the Becker project has is a transferring the arrangement of uh, the mass spectrometer and the neutron generator into something that would fit on a lander. Right. So Becca was originally proposed as a instrument for Venus. Uh, and one of the requirements that they had was uh, the sh- very, very short lifetime of a Venus probe. So we were talking earlier about 14 days being short for a, a lunar lander. A Venus probe might last for an hour or less. And so uh, one of the driving factors for Becca was sending out a bunch of neutrons very fast so they can get a lot of readings to build a statistically significant data set. When Becca was designed for Venus, one of the benefits was that the neutron generator and the uh, gamma ray spectrometer could be placed inside the spacecraft. So you could protect them from the high pressures of Venus and the neutron generator and the gamma rays would be transparent to the material the pressure vessel is made out of. And so that means you don't have to have a special sensor port. You don't have to have some kind of mechanism to deploy the sensor onto the surface. You could have it inside the body of the lander and then remotely measure the surface because you have uh, kind of a remote sensing capability. So transitioning that to Becca for the moon means uh, basically rearranging how the neutron generator and the gamma ray spectrometer are arranged because the distances involved are affect the kind of signal you get. And so uh, the Becca team identified that as one of the risk factors. The other risk factor is that by measuring the gamma rays, you're basically making an inference on what materials and molecules you've excited to produce those. And so the current, like basically the current software that this kind of sensor uses is designed for oil well environments. So it's sedimentary rock uh, with the minerals that are commonly found in there. But when you're talking about the moon or Venus, you're talking about basalt or granite different kinds of materials that are composed differently with different minerals. And so one of the challenges is going to be building rock analogs and recalibrating this instrument so that it can accurately determine the composition of new kinds of rocks. Our next instrument's uh, named Carly. So radioactive dating has been a boon for geologists on Earth, but so far it's required sample returns to use the same processes for astrogeology. Carly, or the potassium argon, laser experiment is designed to make radioactive dating portable enough to do these measurements in space, expanding the number of opportunities scientists have to understand the age of the solar system. The way radioactive dating works is that you have a particular isotope that has a given half-life, and then you measure the amount of that isotope, and you measure the amount of its decay product. So when the half-life occurs, for potassium, it then becomes argon. And so if you basically measure a known quantity of the material and you measure the percentage that is potassium, the percentage that is argon, using the half-life, you're able to estimate the age of the entire sample. 
Carly's really, really interesting uh, because the key part is vaporizing a known quantity of the material and then doing the measurement. So it uses something called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. So it's taking that uh, sample material, turning it into an ionized gas, and then measuring the component that is potassium and the component that's argon. And then in order to calibrate the measurement by knowing the volume of the ablation, it actually is using optical imagery. And so in the white paper for this, they actually have been taking pictures of these holes that have been drilled out with the laser. And by just using a standard camera, they're able to build a 3D interpretation of that uh, drill hole and then measure the volume of that. Wow. Solely using optical sensors. Very interesting. So the Carly team actually has a couple of interesting applications for this uh, sensor or for this instrument. First up is the flux of lunar volcanism. So the current way of determining uh, how old parts of the surface of the moon are is by counting the number of craters. So assuming a relatively constant rate of crater impacts, areas that have more craters are older. However, this has huge margins of error. And uh, in the white paper, they show that the age model for the moon has a lot of uncertainty, especially at either end of the, the spectrum. And so being able to send the sensor to the lunar surface and directly measure the rocks would give a much more accurate uh, measurement. And because it's portable, it would be able to do many, many, many more measurements than literally doing another Apollo-esque program, having astronauts or robots do sample return. Wow. So the last bit of lunar volcanism is that uh, by accurately measuring how old lava flows are on Mars, we can pinpoint when the moon became geologically inactive, uh, where it became a cold, dead world instead of something more similar to Earth. The second part is uh, by measuring lunar craters and basins. So the number of impacts on the lunar surface is the baseline for how active asteroids and comets are in the inner solar system. So when you're talking about how the Earth, Venus, and Mars were formed, understanding how often planetary bodies were hit by asteroids is important because asteroids bring new materials, things like water and other elements, onto the right, planet. Right, and, and like the moon doesn't have an atmosphere to erode away all that evidence of the impacts. Yeah, you don't have erosion forces, you don't have an atmosphere that blocks a lot of those impacts. And so it's a very pristine record of asteroid impacts. By using this instrument and being able to measure many samples around a asteroid crater, you're able to actually pinpoint how old it was. Uh, in the white paper, they point out that in uh, one of the Apollo missions, one of the rock samples they took from a impact crater had a crazily varying age compared to other samples. And so then it comes down to with the limited capability to take samples and bring them back to Earth for analysis, if the rock you get is not representative of the overall environment, that's going to skew your results. So being able to do a lot of uh, radioactive dating on multiple samples in an area can give you a better understanding of how old that crater is. So the last instrument receiving the Dolly Award is called the Lunar Environment Monitoring Station, or LEMS. And NASA has sent a number of experiments to the lunar surface already, but with LEMS, they'll be able to collect data over 
a long period of time. This mission is designed to operate for over two years, which will be the longest lunar surface mission ever, and will collect data on the moon's exosphere, micrometeorite dust, and uh, even seismic events. So Phil, why is it important to do long-term studies of the moon? So it's pretty similar to the reasons why you gave for only looking at a small area of material on the surface. You only get a small sample size. With other missions that are only you know, 14 days long or even a couple months long, that's a very short window of time compared to the longer cycles of the moon. For example, a lunar day is 28 Earth days. The moon has been around for billions of years. So how is the moon changing? How is the environment on the moon changing over long periods of time? Yeah, and, and it's kind of the difference between the daily weather and the climate, right? Exactly, yeah. Daily weather has huge fluctuations, but it takes many, many observations over years to understand what the climate of an area is. Exactly. And so LEMS is kind of designed to be basically a, a weather station, when you put it that way. We'll still have uh, instruments on board uh, within it as a suite to provide detailed measurements of the radiation, plasma, solar wind hitting the surface, magnetic fields, um, and the dust and things in the regolith. So the LEMS proposal name drops CubeSats and SmallSat technology. What impact do CubeSats have on lunar lander technology? Yeah, so one of the main strong points of the LEMS proposal is that it's heavily leveraging heritage components. And when I say heritage, I don't quite mean like 50 years of heritage. I mean flown before heritage. And so um, we've spoken before about the miniaturization of instruments, the miniaturization of spacecraft. And so by using off-the-shelf components, uh, components that have known behaviors in these space environments, they can really shore up their confidence in how this instrument suite will perform over time. And when you have a really long duration experiment, like two years, you want to be sure that your components can last for two years, you know? So um, they've looked at different components that are on small sats, on CubeSats, and also taken a pretty conservative approach in terms of the mechanical design, the arrangement, to make sure that LEMS is, you know, really sturdy and lives for its entire mission duration. So LEMS is actually one of the more interesting uh, payloads because it does so much. And there's a lot of similarities to things we've already covered. So it has spectrometers that measure neutral gas in the exosphere of the moon. It has X and gamma uh, ray radiation detectors. It can measure energetic neutrons and protons for the solar wind. Mm -hmm. It's got particle analyzers to understand the distribution of electrons and ions on the lunar surface. It can measure lunar dust over multiple days and how that dust changes over time, electric and magnetic field sensors to understand, to better understand how the moon's magnetic field interacts with the Earth and the Sun, and so, and even a seismometer, which we covered a similar instrument on Insight, and so it really is, you know, a half dozen instruments all in a compact uh, design, and so I can really see um, LEMS. Uh, as a standalone experiment, going to the moon and staying there, because you get a lot of bang for your buck, a lot of data would come from it. But I can also see it being, you know, uh, a secondary instrument that's kind of tacked on to something else that is also intended to 
uh, go to the moon for a long period of time, like a rover um, or like uh, another lander that has some more uh, detailed primary mission and LEMS is there taking notes on the environment around it over the course of its mission. I can also see uh, LEMS as a package and, and the instruments on board being developed for things other than the moon as well. So by taking the design approach that they have, they're also contributing to that timeline of development that will go on instruments that will make it to Mars or, or other planets and celestial bodies in the solar system. Yeah, you could see something similar to LEMS, uh, say if you had a much larger probe going to Saturn or Jupiter, deploying a LEMS-type lander on a half dozen of Saturn's moons and be able to collect data from all of them together. And so by making, basically by standardizing and and in a sense mass producing these sensor packages that can study so many different things, uh, it opens up opportunities to kind of uh, build a a space tricorder in a a way that um, can be included as part or the whole science package on a probe going to another planetary body. Right. And then by using components that are already seen on things like CubeSats, if you were to build multiple uh, instances of this LEMS instrument, it would only get better in terms of how well these components are known uh, to behave and perform. So the last two missions we'll be taking a look at today are closer to home. These missions were selected by NASA's Heliophysics Explorer program to continue their development. Right. So first up is AWE, which is the Atmospheric Waves Experiment. <laughs> so I, I call it AWE because I feel weird saying AWE. Is that okay? Sure. So recent research investigating changes observed in radio and GPS interference in Earth's upper atmosphere have actually shown that solar variability alone can't actually explain the trends that have been observed with what's been happening there. So scientists believe that Earth's weather must also play a role. And AWE will investigate waves in the lower atmosphere, which are caused by the difference in densities uh, between different layers of the air, actually impact the upper atmosphere and how the reactions that take place there actually change over time. So there's a phenomenon called air glow, which comes from molecular reactions that happen. During the day, the sun uh, shines ultraviolet light on the atmosphere and molecules like oxygen, when they absorb all this energy and stuff, they get excited and react. And when they react with all these other different atoms and molecules that are around them, the reactions produce light. These reactions, not only do they they happen during the day, but they also can cause chain reactions or the molecules can bounce around and continue to bounce around even during the night. So at night, uh, we actually see this light continue to be emitted and the night sky is never actually truly dark. So even if you went to the darkest place on earth and there was no light pollution, there was no sunlight, there was no moonlight, the air would still be faintly shining back at you. And this is called air glow. So when scientists have taken pictures um, specifically of air glow, they've noticed that it's not quite uniform and there are waves that appear and they call these gravity waves. And so scientists don't really know why these gravity waves appear or how they form, but the behavior of these gravity waves is definitely not just caused by the sun. So scientists have hypothesized that in the lower atmosphere, the different 
pressures and the different temperatures of the air kind of like build up on top of each other and start messing with the, these reactions that happen in the upper atmosphere. And AWE is an infrared telescope that will go on the space station and look through the atmosphere at uh, what's called the mesopause, which is 89 kilometers up above the surface. And it will measure a specific molecule that emits light at a very particular wavelength. It's one of these many reactions that happen, but it's quantified and known what wavelength is emitted after this reaction. So AWE will look specifically at hydroxyl, which is uh, oxygen and hydrogen at the specific altitude. And by taking these measurements across a wide field from the International Space Station, they can get the temperatures, the momentum, and the energy fluxes of these gravity waves or atmospheric waves that are driving this behavior in the ionosphere and thermosphere from below. So this is really sweet, um, but I couldn't find an I couldn't find a publicly available white paper on it. I, what I did find was a lot of information about its predecessor, which is called the Mesospheric Temperature Mapper uh, by Utah State University. After that, they made a second iteration called the Advanced Mesospheric Temperature Mapper. And this is a ground-based telescope that's looking up doing this sort of measurement. What's interesting about AWE is that it's taking this ground-based telescope, shrinking it down, maintaining a high resolution, and looking at the same reactions, but putting it on the space station in low Earth orbit. Now that this mission has been selected by NASA, when do they expect it to be launched? Yeah, so the uh, scientists here actually got $42 million from uh, the NASA Heliophysics Explorers Program, and it will be launching to the space station in August of 2022. This thing is awesome. Airglow is awesome. I never heard of Airglow. It's really cool. And what's uh, interesting to me is that it's not like the Northern Lights. The Northern Lights and Aurora Borealis is caused by the solar wind interacting with Earth's magnetic field and ionizing gases in the upper atmosphere and producing light. And so it's kind of producing light in sort of the similar way, but not quite. It's a different reason these reactions are taking place. Um, and atmospheric science uh, and photochemistry in the upper atmosphere is very mysterious to me. Um, so it, reading about how this instrument is looking at just infrared light at specific wavelength and is inferring all these things is really exciting. The next mission that advanced in the NASA Heliophysics Explorers Program is only a concept, but it, it was selected for further study. The Sun Radio Interferometer Space Experiment, or Sunrise, is a synthetic radio antenna composed of six CubeSats working together as a space-based interferometer. Yeah, this one is really cool. Uh, so Sunrise, uh, the point of it is to measure... Uh, solar energetic particles or SEPs which are a main component of solar weather and when scientists are researching coronal mass ejections uh, they look to SEPs to learn more about them and so Sunrise will be looking at medium and high frequency uh, radio observations specifically type 2 and type 3 radio bursts up in geo orbit so the first objective is to understand where the SEPs come from when a coronal mass ejection occurs and then determine what the accelerations are and eventually be able to predict the severity of these accelerations given a particular CME. 
And these SCPs can cause a lot of harm to not only satellites in orbit, but also um, if the coronal mass ejection is strong enough, it can affect our electronics here on Earth. Uh, another objective of this experiment is to test a hypothesis that the wide longitudinal width of some CMEs is due to a broad magnetic connection between areas of interplanetary space. So by doing this, um, they'll take some data points over the course of a couple months to get magnetic field lines of basically the interplanetary magnetic field to plot it out. That's not even the cool part. <laughs> so the cool part is how this works. Uh, so in order to get the right data, the scientists need to take measurements from multiple points over a 12-kilometer wide circular area. But instead of building a 12-kilometer long antenna, uh, this mission aims to use six identical 6U CubeSats spread out over different points within that area. Having pairs of different spacecraft um, make unique synthetic antennas between them. If you imagine a line connecting two satellites to make one antenna, then imagine six satellites, and then drawing unique lines between each pair, that's how many uh, synthetic antennas they have. Only five spacecraft are actually needed to make enough unique antennas to measure all the free parameters that are involved in the physics models to measure SCPs, but the scientists have added a sixth spacecraft there for redundancy. Each satellite would downlink its own data, and then the data that actually bears fruit for the models uh, for type 2 and type 3 radio bursts would come out of post-processing that on the ground. So the CubeSats aren't talking to each other, but by getting data from all of them at the same time, we can use them as a synthetic antenna. So authors have described these CubeSats as a cross between Marco, uh, or Mars Cube 1, which we've talked about on the show before, and the CubeSats from the DARPA high-frequency receiver experiment. The DHFR was a 3U CubeSat experiment that was developing these high-frequency radio receivers, and the antennas they built for those were three-meter-long tape measures on a spring-loaded tip-roll device arranged in a cross. So there were four different three-meter tape measures that sprung out from the CubeSat to make a giant radio receiver. That same idea for the tape measure antennas would collect the high-frequency radio data, and then Marco's X-band radio antenna would downlink that data over the deep space network. And you might wonder why the deep space network, but that's because the proposal has these satellites in the geo graveyard orbit. And so what that means is they uh, change the inclination and the uh, orbital radius slightly. <clears throat> so that instead of being exactly at uh, geosynchronous orbital altitude, they then are either farther away, slightly farther away, slightly closer, and they move uh, much higher up above the ecliptic because they're inclined. And so that means that the chance of collisions with operational satellites in geostation orbit is drastically reduced. Uh, the reason why they need to go to this orbit is, well, A, because it's sort of readily available as a rideshare, um, not as much as LEO, but it wouldn't need its own dedicated launch to put it in this orbit. And the reason why they're going to uh, GEO instead of LEO is because in order to make these radio uh, measurements, they have to be far enough away from the Earth's ionosphere in order to make sure they don't get any interference 
from the Earth's own interactions and atmospheres and magnetic field. Sunrise sounds like a really exciting mission, but when will we actually see it launch? Yeah, that's the catch here. Uh, We don't know. We don't know when or even if this mission will actually launch. So right now, the scientists, they want some additional funding from NASA for another round of development um, and research to make this proposal uh, a little more detailed and robust, but they haven't announced any launch dates. If any of these uh, instruments or new space missions interested you, you should check out the blog post where we have links to all of the white papers that describe the technical and engineering designs that go into them, as well as deep dives into the proposals with extra images, graphs, and full explanations on how these instruments actually work. And the format of this episode was also a little bit different, so and be sure to chime in and say if you'd like to hear more of these technical deep dives into different space missions. If any of these instruments especially interested you, let us know and we will try to get the uh, research scientists working on the projects on the show to ask all the questions that you guys want to have answered about how these instruments work. And that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, uh, be sure to subscribe to future ones. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key space personas like Tori Bruno or Chris Hadfield, in-depth articles on spacecraft and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry on our blog at blog.spexcast.com. Let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice, or reach out to us via Twitter at Spexcast or email at spexcast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott.